This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. Mayday, I'm making tea. Would you like it with cream, sugar, thallium? Antimony? Cream and sugar sounds good. I don't know about the antimony and thallium. Please hold those. No poison today for you? No. All right. Today we're going to be talking about Graham Young, a male poisoner. So, Miss Mayday, how common is it to have a male poisoner? It's typically really rare. Um, Poisoners tend to be female. It's just a thing, I guess, how women choose to murder people. They'll pick up poisons. It's less violent, quote unquote, um, in terms of the physical nature of it. It's really easy because you just slip it into food or drink, as did Graham Young in this particular case. So we'll get into the early life of Graham. He was born in 1947 in in London. His mother died of tuberculosis when he was only three months old. His father decided that he could not take care of Graham or his sister anymore, so he sent Graham off to live with his aunt and uncle, and his sister was sent off to live with uh, the father's grandparents. But the father found new love and a new wife named Molly, and they decided to move the children back home with them when Graham was the age of two. So they started noticing that he was a different kind of child. Um, He didn't interact with others. He was very solitary. And because of this solitude, he developed a love for chemistry and toxicology. And um, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing to have, but he also was fascinated with murders, which Mayday and I are as well. (laughs) So that is not indicative of being a serial killer for the record. Um, It could just mean that they're going to be forensic scientists one day, just for the record. Um, so Graham's father wanted to encourage, uh, Graham's fascination with science and he started buying him chemistry sets and he would bring these chemistry sets to school and his classmates started calling him the mad professor. He also oddly had a fascination with Hitler. Keep in mind, this is the late 1940s. Um, and he would wear swastikas and try and explain to people how Hitler was just misunderstood. So, and a Third weird fact is he was really into black magic as well, and he somehow thought that he could make it real. So he was definitely a different kind of child with a different kind of raising, and so we just keep, you know, aging him through the process. And so by early 1961, he's around the age of 13, and he would go around to the local professional chemists. And he would say that he was older and that he needed chemicals for tests and studies that he was conducting. And I'm not quite sure how old he looked at the age of 13, but these chemists actually gave him these drugs and chemicals. And with his chemistry knowledge and his fan of toxicology, um, 
he would work on the stuff at home. So when his family started to display illnesses, um, Graham's father used to blame Graham for being careless with his chemistry set. Graham was always saying, I didn't mess up anything. I'm not using household stuff. I have no clue why you're getting sick and it's not my fault. Um, his father never thought that Graham was doing anything on purpose, that he was just being careless. Graham himself got sick on a couple of occasions, which is what concluded his father to just think that he was being completely care careless. Um, around this time, Graham also had some schoolmates that would sometimes fall down ill after hanging out with Graham. So nobody thinks anything of it until his sister had to go to the doctor in November of 1961, and they discovered that his sister had belladonna in her system. Uh, belladonna, do you want to go a little bit further on that? Sure. Belladonna, or beautiful woman in Italian, also known as deadly nightshade, or its scientific name, Atropa belladonna, is a poisonous plant that is utilized as medicine and also for cosmetics. You can use belladonna to dilate your pupils. Or you can, fun fact, poison somebody with it to make them fall asleep, like Sally did in The Nightmare Before Christmas when she poisons the doctor in order to escape for the night. So since Belladonna was discovered in his sister's system, Cram's father somehow still did not think anything about it. Like, he just thought his daughter had consumed Belladonna, because that's normal. But... <laughs> But um, Graham's stepmother, Molly, um, she was getting a little bit concerned. And then miraculously, she also started getting super ill. And so in 1962, Molly went to the hospital with stomach pains. And she wound up dying later that night. Everybody thought it was natural causes. And Graham suggested, and for some reason, people are still believing this kid, um, he suggested that Molly get cremated. And they did it. They took his suggestion. Eventually, it'll come out uh, after Graham uh, is arrested that he says that he was slowly poisoning his stepmother, Molly, with antimony, but she had developed a tolerance to this. So then he switched to thallium, and it sped up the process, but it sped it up a little bit too much and killed her way too fast. So now Molly died, and now Graham's father is exhibiting the exact same symptoms. So he takes himself to the hospital and he's diagnosed with antimony poisoning. He winds up surviving because he caught it early. So now you've got Graham's aunt and one of his teachers who had found Graham with his poisons, aka chemistry set, at school. And they suggested to Graham's father, hey, it's time for this kid to go see a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist who saw him said, commit this boy to Broadmoor Sanitarium, like... He doesn't need to be outside. He admitted to poisoning his father and sister and a school friend, but he never admits to poisoning Molly, and because she was cremated, it actually couldn't be proven. So at 14, he was one of the youngest people since 1885 to be sentenced to Broadmoor. So tell us a little bit about Broadmoor. Broadmoor Hospital is a high-security psychiatric hospital located in Berkshire, England. It was opened in 1863. Its first patient was a female who was admitted for infanticide. And in the notes, it described her as being feeble-minded. So this is a hospital that is meant for people who have mental health issues, um, but 
we all know how sensitive people are to mental health issues these days. And especially in 1863, essentially these people were considered lunatics or mental defectives. And an interesting fact about Broadmoor, during World War I, it was opened as a prisoner of war camp. It was called Crowthorne War Hospital, and it housed the mentally ill German soldiers at the time. So we're going to go ahead and leave it at that because both Ruby and I are really fascinated by asylums and sanitariums, and we're going to cover Broadmoor in greater detail when we do future episodes about not only Broadmoor Hospital, but other asylums and sanitariums. So stay tuned. So Graham was now at Broadmoor starting at the age of 14. And while there, um, at least one patient had died of cyanide poisoning. Uh, At a later time, Graham claims he made the cyanide from a laurel bush at the institution. But the death was officially ruled as a suicide by Broadmoor. Um, in the 1970s, or June 1970, his doctors actually considered him, quote-unquote, cured. But this is after he told the discharge nurse that he would kill one person for every year that he had been incarcerated. So he was in this uh, institution for n- about nine years, and he was released in February of 1971 at the age of 23. And when he was released, he went and stayed in a hostel. He still had contact with his sister that he poisoned with belladonna, let's not forget. And the sister was still okay with him somehow. And while he was at this hostel, two more men were poisoned. One of them decided to take his own life because he was in so much pain. So this is what these poisons are doing to these human beings. And Graham just doesn't care and he keeps on going. So around this time, he got a job with a photography supply firm, and this is where they manufactured thallium bromide iodide infrared lenses that were used in military warfare. So he couldn't obtain thallium from work because none of it was stored there, but the fact that they produced these lenses does come into play a little bit later, so hang in there. So it's around this time that he's staying in the hostel that he takes a job at a photography supply firm. And this is where they manufactured thallium bromide iodide infrared lenses that were used in military warfare. So it's important to note that he could not obtain thallium from his work because none of it was stored there. He was able to obtain thallium from a chemist in London. So do you want to talk some about thallium? Sure. So... Thallium at the time was Graham's favorite poison of choice, and it seemed like in his earlier years he kind of transitioned because he was experimenting, right? So he experimented with belladonna and antimony, and then he landed on thallium as his ideal method of poisoning. And this was probably because thallium is odorless and tasteless, and um, it does get combined usually with other halides, and it gives it a colorless to white or yellow color. So it's really difficult to detect it. Basically, it doesn't have a smell, doesn't have a taste, and it looks like a simple whitish powder. And um, essentially what thallium does is it can have extensive um, nervous system damage. It causes pain, loss of reflexes, convulsions, muscle wasting, headaches, numbness, dementia. And then after a couple weeks of poisoning, you start to lose your hair, And then eventually you die because you start um, going into um, like heart arrhythmias. And so it 
when he was low dose poisoning these people, they were going through this battery um, of different symptoms, which ultimately led to death. And for whatever reason, I think he utilized it because it was kind of like a slow poison that can work over lots of weeks where he could observe and document these individuals as they were suffering, essentially. Um, it's highly, highly um, poisonous. Basically, if you ingest over one gram of thallium for every eight milligrams of body weight, it essentially lethal. So very, very little is needed. And so all he needed to get his hands on from chemists was very small amounts of thallium, essentially, to poison ultimately many people. Is there a treatment for thallium poisoning once you have already had it? Yes and no. The yes, because if you can detect it soon enough, you can get treatment. Essentially, what treatment looks like is an antidote called potassium ferrohexocyanoferrate, or Prussian blue. <laughs> right, I know, that's a mouthful. We'll just call it Prussian blue or Berlin blue. Um, so if you can detect it soon enough, um, you can cure it by taking this antidote. But the only way to detect it is essentially in hair or um, in urine um, because it's very difficult to detect in blood because it essentially has a short lifespan in blood. Um, so again, if you don't detect it within six hours, the antidote's not going to work for you. At that point, you need to treat it by dialysis or some sort of medication to increase your kidney's excretion of thallium. So you basically can't um, get cured if you don't know that you're being poisoned with thallium. And most people don't realize it because your early symptoms are essentially gastrointestinal discomfort, stomach pains, headaches, things that you might think are like food poisoning. So it looks innocuous at first, and then it's ultimately lethal three weeks later. So essentially, if somebody is doing toxicology on somebody who has been poisoned, they won't even be able to detect it in the blood. They have to go through urine or something like that in order to determine what they were poisoned by? Yes, and they would have to suspect thallium. This guy's good. I, I mean, not praising him. <laughs> I'm just putting that one out there. Um, so now he's got uh, his job. He's out of Broadmoor. He still wants to murder people. He's already poisoned a couple more since he's been released from Broadmoor. And he's gotten his hands on some more thallium from a chemist in London. So his new work was aware that he was held at Broadmoor, but they were not told what he was held for. So all they knew is that he had been an asylum patient, but not that he had been an asylum patient because he poisoned people. So just keep that in mind. So he's at his new job and he's being the ever so awesome coworker and just makes tea for his coworkers. Um, not to put off anybody who makes everybody else tea, uh, but this guy did and don't take it from him because his supervisor was the first one to succumb. Um, he fell ill, thought he had the flu, and Bob Eggle died in July of 1971. So the doctors put in the file that the cause of death was an immune system disease because it happened pretty rapidly. So then another employee fell ill that October, and then more coworkers are starting to think that maybe there's a disease going around or a plague or something. But this one uh, man who fell ill in October was being poisoned slowly by thallium, very slowly. 
And it happened at such a minimal level that eventually by the time he was aware of it, it had built up so high that they could not cure it. So he was at the point of no return by the time he realized he was being poisoned. So his name was Fred Biggs, and he died a very painful death in November of 1971. So for an entire month, he suffered, knowing that he had been poisoned and no antidote was available. And this whole time, Graham Young is documenting all of this in a nice little journal. So even more employees at this point started to miss work due to illnesses. And so they started thinking that there was chemicals being mishandled in this thallium bromide iodide factory, um, or that there was some form of plague going around, and maybe one of the individual workers was a carrier of said plague. And so because this was a company-wide illness, the company called in a medical assessment team. And Graham overpowered this team with questions about thallium poisoning. He asked every question he could possibly think of about whether or not this could possibly be a thallium poisoning incident. Hmm. That sounds <laughs> suspicious. Right? So now the company is like, well, this guy's weird. Let's look into his background. And that's where they found out that he had been in Broadmoor because he was a poisoner. So they arrest him. And so this is like late 1971 that he was arrested. So they go and they search his home and they found a stockpile of chemicals and this diary. And he documented the course of the poison uh, what it did to them, how much he gave, and whether or not he allowed the subject to live or die. So he was essentially playing God with this poison. And sometimes he would let them live just to watch and see what happens and if they can recover. And sometimes he would see how slowly he could kill someone. So like I said, he learned from his stepmother, Molly, he did it too fast with the thallium. And then with the new coworker, he did it excruciatingly slow. So he was put on trial in 1972. His trial only lasted 10 days. Graham tried to defend this diary and said it was a fiction um, novel that he was writing, and he pled non-guilty. That's not a word. It's not non-guilty. It's not guilty. <laughs> Don't mind me. <laughs> so he, but however, the jury was like, yeah, no, you're guilty. So they found him guilty on two counts of murder because of his supervisor and the coworker. Uh, but those are the only two that they could definitively pin on him. Because remember, cremated remains, you can't do toxicology tests on. And he did also get convicted of various counts of attempted murder for all the times that he tried to poison his coworkers. So he's put in prison at this time, and he eventually... At the age of 42 in 1990, dies of a heart attack. However, most people believe that somehow he got his hands on some poison and killed himself. So once again, this whole case decided to um, inspire a movie. What was right. the movie? And this movie was called The Young Poisoner's Handbook. And it essentially is a um, movie based on Graham Young's life. So you can check it out. Um, I don't know if it's any good. Haven't seen it. I do plan to watch it. Um, I don't know anybody in it. It's starring Tobias Arnold as young Graham and Hugh O'Connor as adult Graham. And it came out in 1995. So we'll see if it holds up. And then, oddly enough, 
Uh, there was a 16-year-old girl in 2005 who was so infatuated with this case and so infatuated with Graham Young that she attempted to kill her own mother with a thallium toxin. She was not successful in this, but she did get convicted of attempted murder. So uh, we have pa- a copycat. Yeah, we have but- a copycat murder based on Graham Young's notorious poisoning by thallium. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, quite sure that's a great role model, but she thought it was. Definitely um, not. So we're going to wrap this one up and let you know Broadmoor Asylum is still currently in operation, but it's no longer an asylum. It's more of a mental health hospital because as we know, mental health these days, we finally got a grasp on most of it and we realize like there's stuff you can do that's right. And then there's the stuff that they did in the history, like lobotomies aren't so good. Right. Which it seemed simple at the time. Let's just remove the part of a person's brain that dictates their um, sort of behaviors. And so let's just remove whole sections of someone's brain to kind of cure them, if you will, of these sort of defective mental states. So obviously we've progressed a little bit from those days and now it is operating as a legitimate mental health facility. So I'm going to re-ask my question and see if you changed your mind, Mayday. Would you like your tea with one lump or two of thallium? Mm, I think I'll still pass. Did you like the extra flavor? Oh, no. Vintage Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery. Murder and mystery.